And now I'd like to introduce tonight's speaker, Mr. Mark Blythe. Mark Blythe is a professor of international political economy at Brown University. He is also the author of Great Transformations, Economic Ideas and Institutional Change in the 20th Century. Please give a very warm welcome to Mark Blythe. Thank you. Hello, everyone. I wrote a book about austerity. If you read the preface, anything I write, the best part's the preface. I'm not just saying this is really true. Uh, because you write the whole book, and then you write the preface at the end, so you finally know what you're saying. You're like, oh, that's what it's really all about. Um, and that's actually, there was a, there's a deeply personal story behind it. So when Oxford University Press approached me in early 2010 and said, you know, this whole austerity thing that's going on after the financial crisis, do you fancy writing a book about it? And it was shortly after the G20 governments got together in Toronto and Jean-Claude Trichet from the European Central Bank came out with this wonderful meme which was growth-friendly fiscal consolidation, right? And I remember hearing this and thinking to myself, that is about as plausible as a unicorn with a bag of magic salt. And then somebody said to me, would you like to make a video about something? And I thought, ah, I know. So that line actually is in the video for austerity. So if you actually like go on YouTube and put my name in, you'll find this video where I've got animation and all that, and all that stuff happened, right? So I did all that, and I thought, well, why am I actually doing this? And why does it annoy me so much? And I tend to write, thing, write about things when I get annoyed about them, because then you've got the energy to continue the project, because frankly, writing a book is a really, really daunting task. And the story, the simple version, which is in the preface, uh, is this. I grew up on what you guys would call welfare. So I am literally the greatest example of intergenerational social mobility you're ever going to see, because I'm a freaking Ivy League professor. Right? So I grew up on a state retirement pension with my grandmother, and I literally went to school with holes in my shoes. Now, why is that important? What are we going to cut? Because why are we cutting before we get to what are we cutting? We're going to cut government services. Now, who consumes government services? It's people like me. Now, why are we cutting in the first place? Well, consider this. You go back to 2000, the number one concern in the financial markets across the world was there wasn't going to be enough federal debt. Let me say that again. There wasn't going to be enough federal debt because we'd balanced the budget. And if your economy is growing while you're running a balanced budget, your net stock of debt diminishes. And people like treasury bills because they're wonderful anchors for investment portfolios and debt markets, and they're super liquid, and they're great. And they were actually worrying about losing them. There wasn't going to be enough. So what did we do? Well, 9-11 came along, and Greenspan did his famous interest rate cuts. And that basically turbocharged a period of kind of pseudo-growth, particularly with financial assets. So at that point in time, the debt starts to creep up again. Then we awarded ourselves two rounds of tax cuts. Because we could, why not? I mean, you know, we could have paid back some debt, but why not just take it in consumption? Oh, and along the way, we'll just fight two wars of choice without raising any taxes. And then by 2006, the federal debt to GDP ratio was 61%. And I don't remember a single congressman standing up in 2006 freaking out about the terrible federal debt. And then in 2007, 2008, the financial markets fell apart. And our response to this, because we'd all suddenly had this crash course in things like CDS and CDOs and all the rest of it, was that we can't let these institutions fail. They're too big to fail, too interconnected, systemic risk. Oh, we have to bail them out, so we bailed them out. And what we basically did then was income protection and asset protection for the people who had made with most of the gains over the past 30 years. And all of that private debt ends up being transferred from the private sector into the public sector and dumped on the public sector's balance sheet. It is the greatest bait and switch in human history. We did income protection for the top 1%, and now you've got to pay it back. Because you go from 61% to 80%. And then you run a wide deficit because your economy is in trouble because of the liquidity crunch that follows the crisis. And then as that real economy slides, what are called your automatic stabilizers, your transfer payments, your government expenditures, even if you're cutting them, continue to increase as your revenues drop. So your deficits widen, and you multiply that over a couple of days, a couple of years, and suddenly you're into 100% debt to GDP, and everyone's freaking out about this terrible federal debt. <clears throat> and where is it meant to have come from? Runaway state spending. Well, let me tell you something, folks. I take Amtrak every other day. I would have noticed an orgy of state spending. It simply didn't happen. It happened on one thing. It happened on guaranteeing the incomes of people who were making it all in the first place for the past 15 years. And it ended up on the balance sheet of the state, and now the state has to pay. But who does the state actually serve? It's people like me. It's the next me. 
It's the transfer payments that keep schools going. It's the transfer payments for pensioners. Why is Social Security even in the conversation about the debt when they have nothing to do with each other in funding terms? And it's solvent. It's solvent to 2036 on its own cost funding basis. You want to solve Social Security? Lift the funding cap at the top. Lift the wage cap for 170,000. That's it. Game over. This is all bullshit. Right? That's really, this is it. This is really the truth. Right? You've been sold a bait and switch. So when I figured that out, I thought, I better write a book about this. <laughs> so the next thing is, the next move is, well, we all have to be austere now. We have to rein in these terrible budgets and all this sort of stuff. But there's just a slight problem with this. It never works. Now, let, let me say this again. It never works. All the cases, and I'll talk about this later, that are identified as cases of austerity, whereby you cut and then you grow, get causation backwards. It's not what happens. What actually happens is you devalue your currency, you're trading to another country which is much bigger than you, think Canada and the United States. As you devalue, the other economy starts to go through a massive upswing and its currency appreciates. They buy boatloads of your exports. Your trade balance goes massively positive. You make a huge amount of money and then you pay back debt. That's what actually happens. There are no successful cases of austerity. It's complete misidentification. I go through it all in detail in the book. Canada, Denmark, Ireland, all the cases from the 1980s, wrong. What's the other lessons? Simultaneous contractions on the zero bound amongst major trading partners, particularly in a common currency, never work. In plain English, in order to save, you need to have income from which to save. If everyone's trying to save all at once, no one is generating any income. So if you have lots and lots of economies that are all interlinked and they're all trying to cut at once, all you do is chip away at the size of the economy itself. So your GDP shrinks. On a constant stock of debt, that means that your debt gets bigger, not smaller. Follow the logic this way. Imagine you've got a typical European economy, 80% debt to GDP ratio. Let's call that 4 over 5, 0.8. Now imagine, that, because the state spends so much in these horrible welfare states in Europe, that of that five on the bottom, two, 40% is government spending. So let's say we buy the logic, we've got to cut all that spending. So you cut state spending in half. That means that one of that five disappears. What's the fraction now? Four over four. You just went to 100% debt to GDP by cutting. Congratulations. That's what's happened in Europe for the past five years. Every single country that has undergone an austerity program now has more debt rather than less. The one country that hasn't cut, excluding the idiotic sequester procedure, is here. And our deficit is going to be 3% by the end of the year. In Europe, it's falling off a cliff and is over 10%, particularly in the periphery. They've generated 25 million extra unemployed. Youth unemployment in Spain is 60%. In which universe is this politically or socially acceptable? And yet they continue to do it. That's worth writing a book about. So the solution for this is that somehow we're all going to become more competitive. And then we're all going to lower our wages and prices. And then we're all going to export. But there's a wonderful fallacy of composition problem with this. The whole's different from the sum of the parts. Let's say that all of Europe devalues internally, basically deflates internally. All, everybody cuts their wages, they become super competitive, they reform all their economies, everything goes great. And they're all going to export. To whom? For somebody to export, somebody has to be importing. You can't all run a trade surplus at the same time. This makes no sense. This is actually the policy of the European Commission. We all need to become more competitive. We all, in a sense, in the Goethe Institute appropriate, have to become more German. Well, you can't. There's only one Germany for a reason. There's only one country that can make and sell BMWs. Everybody else needs to buy them. You can't have a seller and no buyers. So what are Greece going to do? Greece is suddenly going to be competitive against the German industrial machine? I really don't think so. They don't have anything to export. That's part of the problem. Now. Having figured all that out, what else did I discover? It's not really a sovereign debt crisis. You know all the stuff about sovereign debt yields? It's not really true. There's a crisis in sovereign debt markets, but it didn't come around from an orgy of state spending. Even in the Greek case, half of the stuff that they got in terms of people buying their bonds and giving them extra liquidity, which went into their banking system, which created credit, went to build the Athens subway, and went to build the Olympics, and went to build infrastructure. 
So even though they were lying about their debts and deficits for years, hell, Greece hasn't run a budget surplus in 50 years. What do you expect? Right? You had two families that controlled two parties that since the colonels had gotten out of the place in the 1970s had taken turn in stealing the state from each other and finally the money ran out. It was definitely on the skids. Does that apply to Ireland? Ireland's net debt to GDP ratio going into the crisis was 13%. It's now 117. Spain was 26. It's now 96 or thereabouts. How did that happen? Well, Let's think about it. There was this thing called the financial crisis. And over here, all those stinky mortgages that ended up clotting up bag, 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 banks' balance sheets, we ended up giving to the central bank. The central bank adds tons of liquidity, delevers, recapitalizes the banks, and now four years later, the economy is growing again. As it grows, those assets that were once toxic, think California mortgages, become valuable again. You sell them back to the markets. It's risky, but you know what? It seems to have worked. The ECB can't do that. It is constitutionally and intellectually unable to do that. It cannot do asset swaps. It cannot do bond mutualization. It has a no bailout clause. Let's think about this. The whole point of a central bank is to be the lender of last resort. It is a bailout mechanism. To have a central bank with no bailout clause is like having a car with no engine. It is utterly pointless. It's not even aesthetically pleasing. So once you have this and you've built this, and you have a huge crisis you can't deal with, you've got a problem because you've given up your printing press. And when you've given up your printing press because you've joined the euro, all of your banks suddenly have a problem. They've got no one to bail them out. Our banks got bailed out. It ends up in the public balance sheet. We can talk about equity, whether it needed to be done, all the rest of it, sure. But it got done because we can do it. What happens if you have a central bank that cannot reach in, pull those assets out, add liquidity, clean the balance sheets, get lending restarted? You're stuck. So when you have a financial crisis, there's four ways you can play. First one is you can devalue if you have your own currency. You can inflate. You can print your way out of trouble. That's what the Brits have been doing at the same time as cutting, which is singularly boneheaded. But putting that to one side, you can inflate, not if you've given away your, pro your printing press. What else can you do? Well, you can default. You don't want to do that because you'll blow up your banking system. So what are you left with? Deflation. In other words, austerity. As I like to call it, squeeze, add liquidity, and pray. Because that's what Europe has been doing for the past four years. And the price of doing that is the deflation of the economy, otherwise known as mass unemployment, and the immiseration of the people who can least afford it. Well, you get asset protection for the people at the top. That is why this is so fundamentally unjust. And it's not a sovereign debt crisis. It shows up in the sovereign debt markets. The reason you know it's not, when you get those yield spikes, when the interest rates and the bonds go up, what are the markets actually concerned about? They're concerned about a breakup of the euro. And how do we know this? How do we know that they didn't crave austerity because of these governments that spent so much? It's really easy. You track the bond yields. If we had PowerPoint, I could show you. Track the bond yields going up and up and up. The central bank says LTRO, long-term financing operation, giant hose of money, basically taking a leaf out of Bernanke's playbook. Yields go round. Then they start to go up again. Draghi says, I will do whatever it takes, outright monetary transactions. Yields are now down at 4%. All that was lacking was credible central bank policy. It only took them four years and 25 million unemployed to figure that out. So what's the take home on all this? Europe's in trouble. Ultimately, you cannot solve a solvency problem with a liquidity instrument. And the problem that Europe has is a banking problem, not a sovereign debt problem. Because here's how it happened. Let me tell you two stories. So uh, again, there's another visual I could show you, but you've probably seen it. It's a picture. Here is interest rates, and here is time. So you start in the 1990s, and you go up to now. And you've got all these different bond yields, right? Basically, how much interest you have to pay to issue a 10-year bond. And they go like this. And then they all come together at the time the euro is joined, right? And then they're all the same. Everybody's the same as Germany, basically, for like seven years. And then the crisis hits, and they all go up like this, right? So here's two stories. Back in the 1990s, when they invented the euro, people thought, this is amazing. Because we know how good the, Deutsche, the Bundesbank is in controlling inflation, and the Germans have got a great economy. So if we just have this giant bank for Europe, and we get everybody to give up their printing presses, it'll be awesome. Because look at the Greeks. They pay 25% for a 10-year bond. That means you've got a one in four chance of a default. I mean, it's a thinly traded market, but you know, you get, you're taking a lot of risk there. Now imagine what happens if the Greeks no longer have a printing press. 
That takes inflation risk off the table. It takes devaluation risk off the table. Shit, they're becoming German. Look at the Italians. They pay 15% because basically you can't trust their finances either. But if we take away the lira and they can't devalue anymore, that's great. They kind of become German. So the credibility of the institution of the new central bank takes away all these risks and the bond yields converge and everybody gets Germany's credit rating and that's fabulous. Except it's a fairy story. That's not what happened at all. Here's what actually happened. I'm a big European bank and I know that there's going to be this thing called the euro. I know I can buy Greek debt, thinly traded as it is, and get 25% on it. I can buy Italian for 15, I can buy French for 11. And I'm worried, because basically all those yields are going to go down, which means a lot of stuff that I would buy is a really easy trade. France is not really going to default, and I'm getting paid 11%. They're going to disappear. So how do I make money on a decline in yield curve when I know that other banks are thinking the same thing? So that's going to make the yields decline. Why? Because they're all going to grab as much of the high-yield stuff as they can and they're going to fill their boots with it, they're going to bloat their balance sheets with it, they're going to borrow as much money as possible, they're going to lever up to leverage ratios twice that of the average American bank, they're going to develop asset footprints three times the size of your average American bank, and I'm talking the big guys, the big five here. Let me give you some exposure figures. Top three French banks are just under 250% of GDP. Credit Agricole, which is founded as a farmer's bank, is 100% of French GDP in its asset footprint. Deutsche Bank, that wonderful safe institution, runs an operating leverage of about 44 to 1 on an asset base which is 86% of German GDP. That means that a 3% turn against their assets renders them illiquid. It means that a 5% is a wipeout. They're insolvent. And guess what? They don't have printing presses anymore to bail them out. You can see how this is going to get ugly really, really fast. So you spend years doing what's called a kind of volume convergence trade. You're buying and you're buying and you're buying your stuff in your boots. You're making your banks bigger and bigger. And your regulator comes along and says, hey, Pascal, what are you doing? You know, you're taking all these risks. And Pascal says over a few drinks, well, look, basically, mate, I'll never say this on the record, but here's what happens. I know that if I become super big, I'm too big to fail, so you've got to bail me out. But the regulator says, but oh, we cannot because we no longer have a printing press. And he says, great, I'll become even bigger then and I'll become a, rent, a risk for this new thing called the European Central Bank. And they'll have to bail me out. And the regulator says, but they have a no bailout clause. And the banker says, watch me. Because it's an extortion racket. Too big to fail is an extortion racket. That's all it is. You know that you're too big to fail. You're going to take risks because you know you'll be bailed out. Now imagine if your big banks across the whole of this continent start to lend to each other internationally in a currency that none of them control. It's like borrowing in a foreign, country, a foreign currency and lending internationally. And that's basically the structure of what the euro has become. And they have a central bank that hasn't got the capacity to go in and sort out the problem. So what do you do? You add liquidity, you squeeze, and you pray. And that's pretty much where they've got themselves. So it's not a sovereign debt crisis. It's a crisis of the private sector banking system that cannot be cleaned. And the reason it can't be cleaned, and this is why you keep the Greeks in no matter what, is imagine that I'm one of those big banks, and I've got a big, big portfolio, all my assets distributed in different buckets, a whole lot. Sovereign lending's a serious part of it because I played that whole trade through the 1990s and the 2000s. I made a lot of money off that. I'm super levered. I've got to be careful. 5% loss and I'm underwater here. So what's my problem? Well, I lent a lot of money to real estate in Spain and I bought a lot of Greek debt and all that sort of stuff. So supposing the Greeks say, we've had enough, I'm out of here. It's only 2% Eurozone GDP. It's like Alabama leaving the United States. Would you even, if it wasn't in the New York Times or the LA Times, would you even notice? I mean, seriously, right? Well, you know if it's with Greece, because if you lose that 2% in your portfolio and you want to keep your job in the bank, what do you have to do? You've got to make that back. So what do you do? You look at your next most likely asset class that you can sell, and that turns around, and that happens to be what? Portugal. So you dump Portugal to cover your losses in Greece. But the minute I dump Portugal, you dump Portugal, and you dump Portugal. And what happens? Portugal goes to zero. So you go, crap, I've got to get ahead of this. So you grab your Irish stuff, and you dump that down. And suddenly, you've got 11% of Eurozone GDP on the table, and it's all went to zero. So you've got to get ahead of this, because your bank is now in serious trouble. So what have you got to do? You say, what you, what's left? Where do I go? You go to Spain. And Spain's too big to dump. And Spanish banks are filled with total crap and they're not coming back. 
So what do you do? You sell France. And if you sell France, you blow up Deutsche Bank. This whole thing is about stopping a bank run through the bond market in Europe. That's why you keep your foot on the Greeks no matter what. That's why you squeeze as hard as you possibly can. That's why the domestic economy has got to take it, because God forbid that the banks have to pay for their own mistakes. Does that sound like a story we've heard here before? <laughs> because it's the same crisis. Ours is over. Theirs is just beginning. Now, given that happy tune, <laughs> why did anyone ever think this was a good idea? So I went by, I, run, I do this class uh, called Classics of Political Economy, uh, kind of like lock to Lucas in a semester, basically. So, you know, the whole thing, I actually get them to read Adam Smith, and you actually get to read the general theory from Keynes and all that sort of stuff. That's a great course, I love it. So basically, I'd been looking for a reason to sort of do this thing as a kind of a book anyway. So I thought, well, who ever thought this was a good idea? So I went back and tried to find the origins of this idea. And the weird thing about it is, you can't really have austerity as a policy. That is, cutting the state's budget, particularly on social expenditures, in order to write the fiscal balance. It's a simple definition of austerity. You can talk about fiscal consolidation, whatever, but that's basically it. Now, what is the deal with this? Well, the deal is, you, unless you've got a state that's big enough to cut, you would never have this as a policy. And you don't have states that are big enough to cut until you get to the 1920s. But where does the idea come from? Interesting. Go all the way back to John Locke. Go to the Second Treatise on Government. You find in chapter five, On Property, this amazing chapter, where he sets up the rationale for money, private property, the whole one. Now remember who this guy is. He's a revolutionary figure at the height of the English Civil War. He's a leading member of his class, the emergent class of capitalists and merchants. They're the guys who are taking power away from the king. And why wouldn't you? Kings are bastards, right? They'll steal you blind, they'll rob from you, they'll disembowel you. You've got to have something better than this. So these guys thought they were on the good side. So let's do private property. It's great. And we'll distribute and all. It's fabulous. Great. Problem. Once you've got all that stuff going on, you let markets do their thing. There's this kind of weird side effect. It's called inequality. Because you get winner-takes-all rewards, right? You get this sort of like whereby you get a few at the top that take everything, and everybody else is going, why have you got all the money? So, left untrammeled, that's what markets do. So, you need a state. Now, why do you need a state? Because eventually, all the people at the bottom will go, I'm going to burn your house down. And you go, <laughs> oh, crap. So, you need the state, basically, to police the system. Because if you don't have a state, then basically, well, when you think about it, why is it most laws are laws of property rather than laws of person, right? Because if you don't stabilize those inequalities, naturalize them, make them legal in a sense, then the system can't survive. Now, here's your problem. That's why you guys have the Second Amendment. Because any state that's strong enough to do this is strong enough to come and take your lunch. So you can't live with it, but you can't live without it. Now, here's the kicker. That's true, and you don't want to pay for it. So as the state begins to evolve in the 17th century, 18th century, as capitalism begins to spread as a set of practices, the state necessarily becomes bigger. Nobody wakes up in the 1800s and says, I think I'll go into the labor market today, and my marginal wage is 27 groats and a bag of charcoal. To get people to even think in those categories requires an incredible intellectual and political revolution. You have to put in laws, you have to put in courts, you have to adjudicate, private property has to be established, magistrate, all that sort of stuff. So you have to put all those institutions and architectures in place. By the time you get to the Scottish Enlightenment, it's not a contradiction in terms, we did have one. Um, <laughs> You get a couple of guys called Hume and Smith. And Hume comes along and basically says, I know how to solve this problem. Well, what's the problem? So it's Adam Smith, David Hume, they were friends. I'll do a conversation. This is very idiotic, so bear with me, right? So, Adam, I solved it. What? <laughs> how to pay for the state? Well, how's that then? Government debt. Really? How does this work? Well, it's brilliant. It's like a free option. Well, what do you mean? Well, totally unlimited upside, zero downside. Sounds brilliant. How do I get some? Right, here's the deal. The state issues you a bit of paper, okay? And you give it lots of money, right? Okay, but here's the kick, right? Ten years later, or even longer, you get all your money back, and they pay you interest all the way through. Genius! So the thing that I need to keep me safe to stop people burning my house down, I actually just loan it money and it gives me all the money back and it gives me interest. Yeah, it's brilliant, isn't it? There's just a downside with this though. Oh, what's that? Well, in order for you to do that, I'd have to offer a rate of interest greater than you would get by actually putting your money in the market. 
So all the money kind of doesn't go into the market, and it goes into debt. And then when it goes into debt, you get this crowding out phenomena. And it means that the investment that would go into the economy begins to shrink. And therefore, the thing that's going to grow, that's going to service the debt, gets smaller. So you end up with more and more debt. So you issue more and more debt. And politicians will always issue debt, because it's always on somebody else's ticket. And then you end up with a huge amount of debt. And eventually, you have to buy it, sell it to foreigners. And then, quote, you end up tributary as a nation to foreigners. <gasps> Shock horror. So think of all the crap about the United States is owned by China and all that sort of stuff, right? Same shit, different smell, right? So that's the basic story. Now, Adam Smith comes along and adds to this wonderful line. Now, my favorite line from Smith, because I talk a lot of stuff about markets and inequality and things like that, and you get this response sometimes. It's like, I don't believe that that's really what these guys are talking about. Let me give you my favorite line from Adam Smith, and this is a direct quote. Civil government, insofar as it is instituted, is instituted for the protection of the rich against the poor, or those who have property against those who have none. That is not Karl Marx, it is Adam Smith at the back end of book two of The Wealth of Nations. He knew what the problem was. He's got another line where he says, for every rich man there must be 500 poor. The rich man is attended by jealousy everywhere. And were it not for the firm hand of the civil magistrate, he would live in fear and his property would never be secured. So how do you pay for that? Well, his worry was slightly different. You see, because the whole idea that like parsimonious savers, because they're all hardwired to save in Adam's world, we put our savings and it magically turns into investment and that turns into growth. Da -da -da, that's great. Liquidity traps aren't around, right? But anyway, you put all that in, poof, the whole thing takes off. So you get the government debt, crowding out problem, all the rest of it. But what really worries him is what it does to us morally because it perverts our normal parsimonious behaviors. It turns us into people who buy debt and sell debt, not just crowding out the capital, it's turning our natures into people who adore this thing called debt. There's a morality play deep in this thing. Debt is odious, debt is bad. You don't want to do this. So here's a solution. I can't go along with the debt thing. Let's try taxation. Book four, I think it is, of The Wealth of Nations, he opens up with progressive taxation. He actually says, those who own the most should pay the most taxes because they get the protection for it. Brilliant. But that would mean the rich would pay all the taxes. And as a member of the rich, he doesn't like that. So he immediately backs off. And, and quite seriously, he now argues for what House Republicans are arguing for today, a national consumption tax. Right? But here's the thing. He then is honest enough to go, that'll never raise enough money. So we've kind of got a problem because taxation ain't going to do it, so I guess we're stuck with debt. And, and that means basically, as he quotes, says he said it, the ruination of all the great nations of Europe. It's inevitability. And both Hume and Smith thought that by the end of the 1700s, Britain would be bankrupt because they saw the debts going up and up and up. And truly, by 1815, at the end of the Napoleonic Wars, British debt to GDP was 246%. What happened to Britain after 1815? Hmm? It, worked out. it worked out, didn't it? Yes. They kind of went on to color most of the world pink. <laughs> I don't know why we had a pink empire, but all the maps got pink, right? So we basically went out and kicked everybody's doors in and stole from them and had economic growth as well. But basically, you have the British Empire. So debt went down, and by 1867, it was down to 6-7%. Growth. Reinhardt and Rogoff, where the hell was that one? Put that to one side. So, where was I? That's part of it, right, now, so basically what happens is by the 19th century, this begins to split into two tracks, and you get on the one hand people like Ricardo who says, I don't even want to talk about the state, it's all about markets, and if you have flexible prices, you don't have to worry about anything, it's all bullshit, forget about it, Austrian economics goes down that side. The other side you've got John Stuart Mill, because John Stuart Mill's looking at democracy coming down the road suffrage movement, all the rest of it. He says, see all those people down here who don't have the money who might burn your house? They want this thing called the vote. And it's really dangerous for us liberals because what that means is they might vote away our property. So we need to basically have some kind of way of balancing this out. So if you read On Liberty, it's all about that threat, right? It's the basic idea behind it. But what Mill opens the door to is a way for liberalism to start to think about the state as something positive something that can intervene, not as an unnatural intervention in the otherwise perfect market system, because from its beginning, this is a fiction, states make markets as much as markets make states possible. But you can begin to see that new liberal impulse for old age pensions, unemployment insurance, all the things that stop you burning someone's house down. Why was the world's first welfare state built by Bismarck? He wasn't exactly a noted communist, was he? 
He's the most conservative guy around at that particular point in time, but he got that message. Inequalities like that lead to people getting their houses burned down. Let's make it like that. We still make out like bandits, but then they have to stop being a threat. So this is the two tracks around which it goes. This hits the buffers in the 1930s when the Great Depression hits. And you get three responses. The first one, Joseph Schumpeter, Austrian exile, running Harvard University's economics department, is basically the intellectual guru of the, paper, of the period. Has this thing called modern business cycle theory, which is strangely any economist in the audience is just like real business cycle theory from the 1990s, only with a lot less math. But basically, stuff goes up, stuff goes down, there's nothing you can do about it. The economy is this huge thing called a capital structure, you can never ever see it, you can never ever see it in its totality, you're never going to be able to understand it, don't intervene, that's the main thing, right? Banks produce too much credit, occasionally the things go up, they go down, the assets bubbles go bang, and you just have to binge and purge the system. So think of it as sort of like emetic economics, you, know, you gorge too much and then you kind of have to throw up, right? So that was that. So we tried that, and then we had a 14-year depression, because the weird thing was at the bottom, there wasn't anybody coming along and picking up the pieces, we just seemed to like be stuck at the bottom. And this happens because the five biggest economies in the world they're all doing this at the same time, just as they're doing in Europe today. My two favorite cases from this in the book, Germany and Japan, quite fascinating. Japan got so fed up of budget cuts, particularly the Japanese military, they started to assassinate their finance ministers. They took out two finance ministers, two prime ministers, six bankers, and several other lower cadres because they went to war with their own civilian elite. Eventually, they took over the government, stuck in a guy called Takahashi Koryeku. He told the central bank to run the printing presses. They restored growth in the economy despite the global contraction. And then, unfortunately, they got fed up with him and they killed him too and then went on to do World War II. That was the bad bit, but the other bit was quite interesting. So anyway, <laughs> what's actually going on here, because I got seven minutes left and I better shut up, um, is that sort of the events of the Great Depression obviously make us think twice about this whole sort of thing. And what did we discover? We discovered a couple of things. Just as I was saying why austerity doesn't work today, it's all common sense. Fallacies of composition. You can't all save at once, you can't all contract at once and expect this to grow. Second thing, liquidity traps. When you're at the bottom of the cycle, people don't go, right, well, that was great. I feel much better having thrown up now. I'll just start again. You go, no, I'm kind of depressed. Who would invest in the middle of a recession? Not me. And if we all look to each other for signals as to how we're doing, you forget all the good times, heavily weight the bad times, and you get stuck. Hence, you need something to basically turn on the pump so that you raise prices so that you get the economy going again. And then finally, the experience of the 1930s showed two things. One, if you let fascism run its course, i.e. the people who say, to hell with austerity, we won't burn your house down, but we'll just kill everybody else. Bad idea. But more importantly, massive spending, even in the worst possible form, in the middle of a Great Depression, actually does stabilize and stimulate the economy. That was what we learned. Now, why did we forget all that? We forget all that because of a country called Germany. Sorry. And the reason is, Germany was never a liberal country. Germany is basically Japan. Actually, Japan is Germany. They got most of their institutions from the major restoration from Germany. Uh, they got the post office from the United States because the reason you get the post office is because it's easier than setting up a banking system. So everybody puts their money in the post office. Same thing, you force savings, you artificially produce low consumption, you then put it out through banking institutions into specialized big firms. Those firms are dependent on exports, right? Think about it, when was Siemens founded? 1856. All those big German firms around today, they were founded in the 19th century. They've survived two wars, the partition of the country, and the Great Depression. They all live off exports. Your sources of demand live outside. That's why you can't generalize it to everybody else, because your spending is contingent upon somebody else's income. If you're cutting their income at the same time, you've got a problem. So, moving forward quickly, why is this Germany's problem? Well, Germany's problem is that this means that the lessons of the 1930s, the so-called Keynesian lessons, and they're not particularly Keynesian, don't apply to Germany, because anybody who lives and dies by exports can't raise their domestic prices and wages, because it'll make the BMW too expensive. So what you do is you have a big-ass central bank and a competition authority, and you get totally obsessed with rules and competitiveness. Jump forward about 30 years, you get to design the institutions of the European Union, which have a big-ass central bank, a big-ass competition authority, and you care a lot about rules, you don't do discretionary policy, and you think everybody should be competitive. This is all totally fine, so long as all the credit flows are going on with those big banks that are basically flooding wholesale markets in the South, giving the Spanish money to buy the BMWs. One consequence of this, in 1979, Spain was the eighth biggest industrial economy in the world. It's now 17th. 
Why would you bother trying to make cars when you can do beaches better than the Germans? That's one of the consequences. So long as the capital flows are going on, it's great. Helmut can buy his holiday home in Spain. With the profits, you can buy the BMW. Everybody's happy. Boom, the banking crisis, qua sovereign debt crisis happens. All the money disappears. And suddenly, you've got a situation whereby your banks are over-levered, your central banks are fake, you don't know what to do, and the instruction sheet is German, which basically means cut spending, which is exactly the wrong thing to do in an interlinked economy where nobody controls their own currency. So having done this, you can always rely on a bunch of economists to come along and tell you it's the right thing to do, even though it's not. And strangely, they always happen to be the head of the Harvard Economics Department. <laughs> The current one is a guy called Alberto Alessina. He invented the idea of expansionary fiscal contraction, which basically means the following. It's the confidence fairy. Here's what's meant to happen. So the economy's fallen around your ears. You don't know if you'll have a job tomorrow. You've got 20% unemployment. Everybody's freaking out. But what you do is you're desperately concerned with the national debt. I mean, you just lie awake at night worrying about debt. So you're relieved to hear that the government is going to credibly commit to cutting public expenditure. Well, thank God for that. Because doing a lifetime budget calculation out there with my rational expectations in my head, I recalculate my consumer surplus and decide that 10 years from now, because of lower taxes, because the state's going to be smaller, I'll actually have more money to spend today. So buoyed by this confidence, I'll go to Ikea, buy a couch, and end the recession. That's actually, when you strip away all the math, that's the plan. It hasn't worked out too well. The IMF estimated in 2012 that for every dollar cut from public expenditure in Southern Europe, they were losing between 1.5 and 1.7 in expenditure. That's why the economies have done that. This has been fiscal irresponsibility on an incredible scale, not because of spending, because of cutting. So let me end with one thought, because it's one that's really, really obvious, but one that people miss. Why is it when we talk about government intervention, it's always intervention on the spending side? Because if you accept the premise that states and markets have always gone together, if you look around the world and find even the United States, where you basically spend 25% of GDP at the federal level, but because you basically don't want to pay taxes, you only pay 17%, that's your deficit, multiply it over time, you're going to have a debt issue, that's where it really comes from. If you've got all that, if you're like an average OECD country, you're spending 35% of GDP. Why is it it's not an intervention when you cut? Why is it only an intervention when you spend? Why is it when the government buys a computer that goes to a public university that processes a form for an NIH grant for a biochemist who works in a public university who invents a molecule that 10 years down the line revolutionizes biotech and creates 100,000 jobs? That's a waste of money. But when the worst author in the universe, who will never publish a word, buys a Mac, that adds to GDP. Why is private spending always good, public spending always bad? And why are the only interventions we have to avoid interventions on the spending side and never interventions on the cutting side? So there's a conclusion I drew from all this. I like to call it Hippocratic economics. First, do no harm. Because if you look at what happened from 2008, if you took a poll of all the finance professionals and said, who's toast, who's going to survive, who's coming out, the story was this. America, toast, spent too much, crazy debt, we're done. Europe, prudential banks, everything's fine. Asia, mixed bag, we don't really know, you can never trust Chinese export figures, <laughs> which is true. What's the story now? Europe, Toast, self-inflicted wound. America, because of gridlock, at least hasn't cut much. And what's happened? We're recovering because we don't have a fake central bank. They do, and they cut. It's monumentally stupid and costly. And they're still doing it. Because mere facts are never enough to get in the way of a good ideology, particularly one that's 400 years in the making. There you go. Hi, my name is Todd Kerner. To what extent do you think the drive for austerity is driven by the public perception that you see enough stories about welfare queens or government mismanagement that the prevailing wisdom is going to be cut government, 
yeah. and cut all his wasteful spending. Here's a nice way to think about this. If you ever get into an argument with someone about this, a nice way to sort of like just end it really quickly. So get them to say the following. So what you're telling me is that government's just like a family, right? And you always get this one with, you know, well, if the family spends too much, then the family just has to stop spending, right? You know, that's what you do. All right, here's why this doesn't work, right? First of all, families don't get to issue their own paper, which is internationally tradable. Families don't get to import people into the family and then tax them across generations to pay for the paper they've issued. We do. It's called immigration, right? In the United States, families don't get to issue the global reserve asset, which everybody else needs to earn to conduct international trade. We do. So the notion that this is anything at all like some simple household budget moral or responsibility thing is complete nonsense. For a country, what you're spending and saving is an outcome of policy choices. That's not true for a family. A family can't stimulate its way to recovery by going shopping. <laughs> right? So those simple homilies are politically really powerful, and they're usually always poisonous. And the welfare queen example is the perfect example of that. Did anyone ever find her? Was she actually driving around in a Cadillac? Did she have 12 kids because of the social benefits? You know, it's a brilliant one occasionally. I guess, well, what about all this welfare spending? All right, how much does the federal government, as a proportion of GDP, actually spend on cash transfers to individuals? Actual welfare spending? None. Bill Clinton ended it when he ended welfare as we know it in 1996. Oh, but there's transfers and people get food stamps and all that. Yeah, but there's no cash transfers. And if you think food stamps are a lot of money, go have a look at the numbers. It's really not that much. So on the one hand, it seems that you said the European Central Bank's not a real central bank, so it can't bail out the troubled banks. But on the other hand, you weren't happy with the idea of transferring private debt to the public yeah. sector. So I'm confused as to... You're not confused. You're absolutely right, because I'm confused. And I'm confused in the sense that I'm torn over this morally, right? So imagine the following. Here's my line I use in the book about why we had to bail out the banks. Um, there are 156 million people in the US labor market, give or take, right? And uh, if I remember right, 72% of them live paycheck to paycheck from a survey of 2011. And there are 75 million handguns. Now just imagine what happens if there's no money in the ATMs. Do you want to face that? Right, if, you, if it was on your watch, what would you do? You'd bail them, absolutely. But what you did at the end of the day was to make the banking sector more concentrated and you gave asset protection and income insurance to the people that already had everything. I think that is terrible. What we should have done is you do a one-time bail and then you break all these banks up and you get them much, much smaller and you do serious policy reforms. That hasn't happened. There's a nice reading of Dodd-Frank I'd be happy to talk about that tells you why that actually might be happening, but it's round the back door and stuff, right? But that's basically what it should be. Now, the European Central Bank can't do that, so basically they can't do asset protection for the rich. And that leads to another terrible consequence. Now, at the end of the day, we get a recovery with asset insurance. They get no recovery and no asset insurance. It's two really sucky options. You, in the 1930s, there was a lot of social instability in Europe and the United States, and there were different responses to that. Nowadays, what I see is that there's discontent, but other than the um, Occupy movement, which was, didn't have a, a, an ideology, yeah. a coherent ideology, I don't see any type of... Um, coherent way, political movement to make this adjustment. Before, mm -hmm. people were afraid of that the government was going to fall, communism, yeah. socialism, etc. That doesn't seem to be a threat either here or in Europe, so what will be the incentive for there to be change? I don't have an, a, an answer to give you. I think you're right. I mean, the movements which energized in the 1930s, whether they were progressive labor movements or fascist movements, right? You know, a little family history here. Not only did I grow up with my grandmother and was raised in the original meaning of the word austere, right? Um, back in the 30s, she was a supporter of Mosley, the British fascist party. So we have this romanticism that's sort of like, you know, everybody in the working class is on the left. Horseshit. Fascists were voted in. And if you look at what happened in Germany in the 1930s, it's really quite salient. Because you get this story from the Germans about inflation. It's this terrible thing. Well, the actual hyperinflation of 1922 and 23 was deliberate government policy to screw the French over reparations payments. 
and it was incredibly successful because it bunged up their entire financial sector and it got them the, the DAWs plan for repayments, which switched the seniority of uh, uh, war credits to private credits. And that meant, you know, who gets paid back first. And that meant lots of American money flew into Germany. Why would you not invest in this? It was one of the best economies in the world prior to the war. So you get four years of growth and expansion. Then they do a seniority swap under what's called the Young Plan. Suddenly, war credits get seniority again. The interest rates in the US go up. All the money pours out. In response, Bruning, as chancellor, the head of the Central Party, he is, what am I going to do? And he goes, well, I'll just, cut. I'll just cut the budget. I'll cut the budget because I'm in a fiscal crisis. So I'll cut and I'll cut and I'll cut. And it was this minor party that nobody had heard of. Or they had, but they'd forgotten about them after this putsch in 1924. They were a joke. They were run by an Austrian house painter. They didn't even get double figures. And then, in 1930, they were above double figures. And then they got 18% of the vote. And then they got 30-odd percent of the vote. And by the time that they took power fully, in 1933, they had 43% of the vote. These things can happen very, very quickly. You have fascist parties in southern Europe now. You have countries that traditionally have problems with immigration. These are becoming xenophobic. The Brits want to leave. The Brits don't trust foreigners anymore. You've got flag-waving Union Jack people running around the place, United Kingdom Independence Party, all this sort of stuff. This is a toxic brew. Nationalism is the last refuge of a scoundrel. There are many political scoundrels around just now. So this, I don't know where it's coming from, but it happens really fast. I was wondering uh, if you could quantify specifically, maybe at a policy level, what you would like to see happen. In other words, government spending, what level of government spending would be good? Does it matter what the money is spent on, or does yeah. it just matter the amount that it's spent on? And at a certain point, does it matter what the debt-to-GDP ratio is? In other words, do you reach a point where you start to lose the benefit? Right, right. Um, first of all, I'm not Paul Krugman. He's way more expensive than me, and he's a bit shorter, right? So <laughs> I'm not actually like, stimulate, right? It's not my knee-jerk response, right? I think it has to be calibrated. It has to be nuanced, right? Now, could we have done with a bigger bang for the buck several years ago? Would that have got us back onto a higher GDP track? Would we have less unemployment now? In my opinion, we would have, right? Would we have suffered massively catastrophic debt? No. We're printing a global reserve asset, for God's sake. Basically, everybody buys T-bills because they're afraid, and when they're confident, they liquidate them so they can get dollars. It's a win-win. We're barbells, right? We've been running a scam with China for the past 25 years where we give them bits of paper bearing 2%, and they give us televisions. Right? And there are morons in Congress that want to end this. I mean, I, I just don't understand. Now, to the question, right? What should you actually do? Well, let's think about it this way. What's the key lesson of Keynes's economics? I think it's the following. Negative productivity growth is a stupid idea. So when you stop, when you cut, when you do these things, when you're not spending, when the private sector spending is going down and you do government spending, what are you doing? You're shrinking your economy. And that means that the roof doesn't get replaced. And it means that the plant and equipment isn't updated. It means that the unemployed don't update their skills. They atrophy. And meanwhile, the other countries in the world that aren't doing this stuff, they are replacing the roof. They are upskilling. So their GDP track and productivity track is going like this, and yours is going like this. And it's very, very hard to come back from that. And this is Europe's big problem. And this is why I say they're screwed for a generation, because they've had five years of negative productivity growth on top of an even bigger debt load than when they started. That's just stupid. So what should the United States be doing? First, do no harm. And apart from the sequester, we haven't done much harm, and we're actually growing again. Are there useful investments we could make? Hell yeah, for God's sake, one in three bridges in this country is about to fall down. I mean, that would be a really useful thing to do. So anything that enhances productivity at a long-term investment is a seriously good idea because it raises your GDP track. You don't have to try as hard to be rich. So that's the type of public spending I'm in favor of, and there's lots of ways that you can do this. It doesn't have to be consumption. It isn't about just passing the hat around and giving people money. That's stupid. It's about being smart with your public investment, and we have underinvested for a long time. It just seems to me that um, California, for instance, supposedly still has like 11.1% unemployment, yet we, still, we see a, a great deal of, I think, prosperity, at least in the big cities. As the tech uh, boom continues, et cetera, et cetera, we see housing going crazy in the city itself, 0.2%. Yeah. Uh, growth in prices this last year. Do we have measurements that are 
equal to the economy and the kinds of jobs and the kind of work that gets done that are equal to that now? Or are we still stuck measuring stuff from an economy that's really 15, 20, 30 years old? I would say intuitively, yeah, we're not capturing on a lot of it. But it may be the case that we're barbelled in the following sense. I mean, by barbelled, I mean even on both sides, right? So you're missing something, but there's also stuff that we do know that we don't incorporate. So let me give you an example out regarding housing, right? So I just bought a condo in Boston. So Boston's, you know, a global city. It's a mini one, but it's a global city, right? Think of it as the San Francisco of the North, right? Now, uh, it's not nearly as overpriced as San Francisco, but we'll put, put that to one side for a moment, right? So I buy this condo. It's actually really difficult to do so, and it's not because I don't have money. It's because I don't have 100% cash. So what's going on in a lot of the neighborhoods all over California? People are walking in with a million bucks and dumping it down. Now, how does a normal person compete with that? Well, what does that tell you about the income skew? What does that tell you about what people have been doing for the past five years? They've been sitting on cash. And now, to go back to the last comment, right? Because we're on a lower GDP track, and because we've got super cheap cash, it's even easier to borrow cash, but at the same time, there's less places to put it to get yield. So what do you do? You start buying real estate. So you're creating little asset bubbles all over the place again. That should be trampled down by policy. You should basically be able to say that, you know, according to lenders, if you're doing cash buyouts and all these different things, then 20% of them have to be this or whatever. You've got to have some mechanism for basically changing this again from a bubble structure. So the stuff that we don't know, true. But there's also stuff that we do know that we're not doing enough about. Uh, David kuchner uh, you had the, uh, uh, you mentioned about uh, the breakup of the banks uh, as being one of your hopeful ways of that would have happened in the aftermath of the financial crisis. Do you think something like that will actually take an, another crisis to actually happen? Or do you really believe that Dodd-Frank and the back door will come through to save the day? Let's say I'm hopeful. And here's how I'm hopeful, right? If you run at Jamie Dimon, or one of these big guys in finance, with the one thing that would make sense, a leverage rule, right? You're just not allowed to basically lever up beyond, let's say, 12 to 1 and 14 to 1. They will take a trillion dollars in lobbying and kill you. You're done. So you can't fight them. And you, you, to use Gramsci's term, right? You can't do a war of position. You've got to do a war of movement. You've got to keep moving. So why is Dodd-Frank 2,400 pages, including the rulemaking and all the rest of it, right? Oh, it's a bonanza for lawyers, blah, blah, blah. Everyone will game it. No, what you do is you drown them in complexity. You make them de-lever a thousand different ways. You increase their compliance costs. You increase their fixed costs. You make it expensive to trade. You tax propriety trading. You put in a transactions tax. And then what you're doing with all that government debt you got out there in the world, this is where we're heading, folks. It's called financial repression, particularly in Europe, because this is how Europe eventually gets out of this problem. What you do is you've got all these banks, particularly in Spain, that are already filled with lots of dead government bonds. So you've got sovereign bank problems. So what you do is you stuff them with even more. Then you do what the United States did with war bonds in 1945. You take the bonds and you call them something else. And you lengthen the maturities and you stuff them in the banks. You lower the coupon that they're paid and you place an inflation rate in the economy to just about 2 or 3%. What you then have is a negative real interest rate on those bonds. And that means over time as the economy grows, plus inflation, the debt goes like this. The United States managed to liquidate this way between 30 and 40% of GDP over a 10-year period. That's how we got out of our World War II debts. So a combination of death by a thousand cuts plus financial repression, which is the nightmare of any big bank because it's exactly how they make money, that's how we're going to do this. Now, are we up for the fight? That's the trick. That's, that's the difficult question. That I don't know. Thank you so much. We'll see you outside. Thank you. Thanks for coming. <laughs>